You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 212. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock, Our Take segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week. We got a busy show. I will kick it off with a look at consumer spending in the U.S. economy, how it affects the general economy, and what some of the bellwether consumer stocks which report this week are telling us about the spending habits looking into next quarter. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, Aaron will answer a viewer question on Zoom Video Communications, Inc., symbol ZM on the NASDAQ, the pandemic darling, which offers a unified communications platform. It reported earnings last week that appeared to be disappointing, but did mention an investment in AI. So Aaron lets you know if there's an opportunity here on the drop. Brennan answers a viewer question on Converge Technology Solutions, CTS on the TSX Venture, a software-enabled IT and cloud solution value-added reseller, which we have reviewed and warned against on the show in the past, yet keep receiving questions on it. Brennan lets you know his thoughts after the recent price drop. Is it finally an opportunity, as most Canadian brokerages seem to think, or is the stock one to continue to avoid? And last but not least, Brett reviews the topic du jour, the U.S. debt ceiling, which is once again being debated in the U.S. Congress as part of Biden's 2024 budget. Brett will let you know what is going on and if it will affect the markets. So let's get to the show. I'll welcome Aaron and uh, my co-hosts here, Brennan and Brett, the Killer Bees. How are you guys doing? How was your long weekend? It was Was good. it long enough? No, it's never long enough. Never. Never. No. Yeah. Did you get up to anything, I Aaron? The podcast. Yeah. I missed doing the podcast on Monday. Didn't see so you it. had to come back early, right? Yeah. Or or late, one of the two. Ruined my family's <laughs> plans, yeah. Yeah. Did you get up to anything, you two? I went golfing. Right. Yeah. It was golfing. the first. Yeah. It was, I mean, oh, you said three birdies right in a row. House. Yeah. Right, right beside my house. Yes. It was the first time I ever strung together three birdies in a row ever. Yeah. Um, the on a mini off. golf course. Not a mini golf course, but I mean, it is a pretty easy golf course, I will admit. So, on yeah, a pitch and putt? No, no, not a pitch and putt, but pretty small course. It was on a par three and then two par two back to back par five. So, I mean, they were pretty yeah. short. So, uh, pretty scorable holes. Nice. Anyways, it was a little smoky in Saskatoon, though. And uh, yeah. as Ooh, I was saying, fires. um, yeah, uh, I, I think it's the forest fires from Alberta still, I'm mm-hmm. assuming, but right, uh, right. you know, I don't know for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, but yeah, other than reason. that. Uh, Ryan was bugging me last week about, you know, um, was it not hanging out with my mother's day or not going back to Prince Albert to hang out with my mom on mother's day? Yes. You're an awful child. Ryan. Yes. Well, they were, uh, my, my parents were in town this weekend and it it was a lot of fun hanging out with them. And my, my niece is finally starting. So what you're saying is they had to come to you. 
<laughs> yes, they had to come to me. To see you. They okay. delivered some we'll groceries. We'll make a note of that so, here. Uh, we'll make a note of that. They didn't make me pay for those groceries that they delivered as well. Anyways, enough about <laughs> me. Did you get up to anything, Brett? Yeah, no, I, I had my uh, brothers over for uh, a nice steak dinner uh, as nice. our belated mother says. Yeah, I know. I, I, I tell Aaron nothing about my life. <laughs> I've been trying to keep this secret and... It finally came out. I, I, yeah, I actually have two brothers and a sister, and that's news to Aaron, but not them apparently. Yeah. <laughs> we knew. Yeah, they knew. Aaron knew. He just forgot. I just don't pay attention when people talk. Yeah, that's true. Stuff, right. I've it's got true. six and sisters. Aaron, did you... huh? Like I said I've got six sisters. I'm just. I have four, them. but Aaron knows that. I think. I think I he knows that by now. Count. He's met. He's <laughs> met most of them, so he should know by now. What? Those are your sisters? What the hell? <laughs> So did, did you get up to anything interesting, Aaron? Nothing really interesting. No. Yeah, no. We, we went to uh, went up to Whistler for the weekend and had some nice meals. Well, kind that's like more interesting than us. Me. It's not my birthday yet, but it's coming up here. So he gets a birthday week. Remember? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Ryan <laughs> tried to schedule a meeting on my birthday week, and I'm like, Yeah, well, it was a ten minute meeting, and that was Aaron's birthday week, and we, it's well, forty eight. That big that. year, right? That's, that's yeah. True. What about you, Ryan? I already had it. Did you do anything what? cool? What, what about you? You said there was something I about I said I went to Costco, and that's going to segue Ooh, into what I'm wow. talking about oh, okay. here today. Yeah, Fire consumer away. spending, right? Um, yeah. I'm going to try to share my screen. It was thrilling. Costco was busy as hell, like as it always is. The parking was uh, hideous, and uh, that's why I always go on a Sunday at noon. No, I actually go Sunday at noon, which is like the worst time to go, but it's the best time for samples. And uh, my daughter loves the samples. So it gives us like two hours that we get to hang out. The Costco trip would in a normal time probably take an hour and it takes two or three hours because it's that jammed. But and because we wait in sample lines, but it, it's good times. What is consumer spending? That's a good place to start always when you're talking about consumer spending. Well, consumer spending is the total money spent on final goods and services by individuals and households for personal use and enjoyment in an economy. But why is it so important? Well, number one, it directly affects a country's GDP. In fact, if we look here, this is the U.S. 10-year chart on U.S. personal consumption expenditure, expenditure as a percentage of GDP, which is gross domestic product. That is the market value of all the final goods and services produced and sold in a specific time period by a country. As we can see here in this chart, in reference to the U.S., consumer spending uh, is currently 68.41% of total GDP. Uh, that's about the average in the range of just maybe slightly above over the last 10 years. And that is a very significant part of the economy as a whole. It can, it can certainly serve as a, an indicator of the general economic health of a country. Now, the consumption of final goods is the ultimate motivation for and the result of an economic activity. This is because companies produce all the goods that individuals consume. It also shows the overall consumer confidence in an economy. Consumer confidence measures how optimistic consumers or customers are regarding their financial situation and that of the economy. This means that high consumer confidence can lead to higher level of spending. So let's look at consumer spending as an investment indicator. Real GDP, uh, which is the 
in, in, which is an inflation-adjusted measure that reflects the value of all goods and services produced by an economy in a given year, often is considered a key economic indicator to watch. If consumers spend less, they provide fewer revenues for a given business or within a given industry. Companies must adjust by reducing costs, wages, or innovating and in introducing newer or better products and services. Companies that do this uh, most effectively earn, pro or earn higher profits. If they're publicly traded, they tend to experience better stock market performance. For companies that do not or cannot, uh, the opposite is also true. So let's quickly look at bellwether companies for an indication of where the economy is at present and where it may be headed. A couple report this week. The first is uh, BJ's and the second would be Costco. BJ's is far smaller, but it does give a good uh, broader economic outlook on the U.S. economy. Um, Thursday, Costco will, will report Thursday afternoon. We'll take a look at those numbers from Costco next week. Uh, BJ's Wholesale Club Holdings, Inc., Let's review what they talked about in their conference call, which was this morning. Uh, on BJ's, they reported first quarter results on Tuesday morning that were a bit shy of their earnings estimates. Uh, earnings actually matched estimates, but the consumer or, or the comparable, sorry, same store sales were shy of estimates. Uh, they were supposed to come in around 5.7% for the first quarter. They came in at 5.9. So didn't miss by much, but did have a miss there. But it was the commentary from BJ's um, leadership that offered something of a bigger picture for investors trying to make sense of the consumer in the US economy right now and overall. Management continued to suggest that the consumer is growing more cautious, while the primary factor driving that caution is inflation. Here are some quotes uh, during their prepared remarks from the earnings call. Their CFO, Laura Felice, said that the company is dealing with an increasingly discerning consumer environment. The CEO, Bob Eady, referenced the theme, of, the theme of trading down, which dominated big box earnings last week. He stated, everybody wants to save money. Everybody feels like it's a bumpy economy out there right now. Finally, he went. the CFO went on to say, as we sit here today, we see a consumer that is continuing to visit and spend in our stores on the margin while they are spending more with us. They are also being more choosy with the dollars and allocating those dollars in favor of necessities. Like I said, I was at Costco this past weekend. I'll say anecdotally, um, I saw the price of chicken breasts. These are organic chicken breasts. A package was $50. Uh, but the non-organic was $30. And I found myself thinking, do I really love my family that much? And what the hell is organic chicken anyways? Is anybody even checking to see whether the birds are, what they're really eating? $20 can make a big difference every week. And the thought of trading down in this respect entered my head. Consumer spending is a huge part of the overall economy. And if the consumer pulls back spending, there will be repercussions for economic growth. We keep hearing of a recession, but we're still waiting for it. But there are more signs of a slowdown. And again, you're hearing it this week from the management of BJ's Wholesale Club. And you may hear it from Costco. We'll review that next week. Yeah, like I saw, I was reading an article the other day, um, basically kind of highlighting the same thing that, uh, you know, Walmart is potentially a top pick. Uh, 
right now because consumers are reevaluating their spending and generally, you know, um, Walmart does have lower prices. That's goods. from the playbook of necessities and yeah, yeah. Walmart offers, yeah. you know, lower price necessities. You hear that all the time when you're entering, potentially entering a recession, which may or may not ever happen. Totally. But and yeah, I mean, have, have you experienced any time where you guys are like, you know, I might buy this, but I'm going to look for the lower version, like trading down that does affect. So it may affect your more premium luxury goods as we, you know, we see going forward and companies that are exposed to that may see weaker results going forward. Aaron, have you had any cases where you're like, I'm not going to buy this and I'm going to substitute for not going to buy Y, I'm going to substitute for X? You don't. Care. Yeah. Well, you want Well, here's the thing is that my wife does most of the shopping and she's very mm-hmm. price sensitive. Like she's like, yeah. her thing is that she's always trying to find like the good deal. Um, yeah. Regardless of the economy. She's gonna, That's yeah, what you and, should and be doing. In, yeah. in any economy, right? Like, yeah. I mean, she has a huge shoe, shoe collection, but in her, you know, to, to basically give her some credit there, she's able to find like pinpoint really good deals on them. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I would say we're. That's we're what she tells you. Of, right. You know, I, I mean, I think that there's obviously like there's there, there are some people in society that, you know, they have enough money that a change in the economy isn't going to affect their spending that much. And then there's some people, you know, at the lower end of the economic ladder that they weren't really buying a lot of those luxury goods anyways, but it's, it's the people in like that middle, like that middle class where it's when the economy is doing really well on the margin, you can afford to treat yourself a little bit. And, you know, now that the economy, now that there's more uncertainty, I would think I'm surprised we haven't seen it more. Yeah. Yeah. You would think if this continues, you're going to see more people tightening their, their belt strap. I mean, Brennan showed that, um, breakdown of the mortgage market, how yep. mortgages are expanding out. So we're seeing how people are affording, that's, like why we haven't gone in. That's allowing that people to continue behavior they may not, they should not be continuing. That's it's, an it's issue. Basically, it's, it's rather than, okay, interest rates are higher. Now we have to tighten our belt straps. It's like, well, we'll just extend the amortization out significantly yeah. to reduce, but that only works for, for a period of time. And so. that pain is lagged too. Like there was actually a B or yeah, I guess a BNM Bloomberg article that was posted last week. And my friend sent it to me and was like, Hey, look, we're ahead of the curve on these amortizations getting extended either way. Uh, there was comments made by the bank of Canada and they said, and I'm quoting from this article about one third of mortgages have seen an increase in payments compared with February of 2022 before the bank started its tightening campaign that has boosted rates by 425 basis points by the end of 2026, nearly all mortgage holders will have seen their payments increase. The central bank said, If mortgage rates evolve in line with current market expectations, the median payment increase over the 2023 to 2026 period will be about 20%. So, I mean, we are seeing that lag and it's slowly going to hit the economy. Uh, Also in this article, um, it was also talking about just that the average individual that is buying a home between uh, 2020 and I believe 2021 is, has much more credit card debt now and is res, you know resulting or having to go towards credit card debt where anyone who bought a new home between 2018 and 2019, again, I'm paraphrasing here, um, didn't have as much credit card debt essentially. Um, so we are seeing, you know, this is slowly lagged. You know, I'm not doom and gloom or, or anything. You know, the economy might just continue to clip along. Um, but, you know, Canadians and, you know, people are, are starting to feel uh, the pain 
um, somewhat uh, by rising costs and rising interest rates. Yeah, sometimes it takes a while, but mm-hmm. yeah, it it should be unavoidable at this point. They're trying to have people avoid it by extending, but like Aaron said, at some point you have to pay the piper, and yeah. we should see that at some point. We got to. Mm-hmm. Make sure we're adjusted in our portfolios to deal with that over the long term. Good businesses, quality uh, management teams, good cash flow, good balance sheets. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. Zoom video communications. Aaron's going to answer your stock, our take on that. ZM on the NASDAQ. Yes, yeah, certainly. You take a company it away. that does not need an introduction. It was um, one, of the, one of the most uh, highly touted companies during the early stage of the pandemic and for good reason as well. So. We're going to take a look at the company. Zoom just released its uh, its Q1 fiscal 2024 financial results. So let's just take a walk through here. Um, company's trading right now at about $66 per share. It's a $19 billion market cap, which for the U.S. really barely qualifies it as a large cap. Um, and of course, you know, not that, that anybody needs to know what Zoom does, but they are the largest video conferencing platform globally. They serve both the consumer and the enterprise market. So just looking at what the competitive structure looks like in the video conferencing software market worldwide, Zoom has an estimated market share of about 55%. So definitely the leader in the space. Uh, Number two spot is taken by Microsoft Teams, just under 21%. um, and, uh, And it goes down significantly from there. So Definitely. I mean, it, this this is a market leader in what I would consider to be, you know, a fairly innovative um, growth oriented market, at least long term. Um, but if we look at, at Zoom's share price over the last five years, um, it has been an absolute roller coaster for investors. So when the pandemic hit in 2020, all of us are working our communication. Everything went online because we couldn't go outside. And Zoom was there. And Zoom was the number one software platform um, to fill that that need. So the stock price absolutely went parabolic for a while. Um, but then in about October of 2020, so it didn't even get to the end of the year, it started to trend downwards. And I, it really just hit highs that were absolutely fantastically overvalued, even given all of the benefit that it was providing society at the time. But it has declined from its, its peak. Uh, one of the biggest decliners in the mega cap tech space down almost 90% and really no sign uh, since that peak of any type of sustained um, recovery in the share price. But just uh, just recently, the company put out its, its Q1 results. Now, um, the they did beat analyst consensus. They reported uh, non-GAAP EPS of $1.16, beating consensus by 17 cents. Revenue also beat slightly, but the stock price did drop about 7% after the results. Um, as of the time that uh, that we did this video, so it's um it, it they did not they they somewhat disappointed the market. Obviously, there's a lot of other things going on as well. Um, financial data coming out or economic data coming out, concerns about interest rates. But this company hasn't really generated any type of a, a bounce or sustained bounce since the start of the year, as we have seen with many other technology companies. So really a, a, a massive drop for what is, you know, a household name um, and a leader in what should be considered a very attractive space. So uh, we'll take a look at the financials and see what's going on here. Um, just a snapshot of the company right now. So as I said, trading about $66 per share, 
And analysts have a one-year target price of about $85. So, you know, a lot of people would look at that and say, you know, almost 30% or so increase. It's uh, it's pretty uh, pretty attractive. You know, maybe that's something that we should consider given all of the other things with Zoom. It's, it's leadership position. But why don't we just take a moment and just think about how reliable these analyst estimates are. And we're going to do that by going back in time. And we're going to look at what analysts were saying about Zoom um, back when the share price was close to its highs. So we can go back in time um, to about April 14th, 2021. This is after the stock had already come down a little bit from its highs, but it was trading about $321 per share. And at that time, analysts had a target price of $476. So big revisions in the analyst estimates here. And, you know, anybody can make a mistake. I'm not trying to say that analysts uh, on Wall Street are going to be perfect. But what this is really trying to show you is that when it comes to pinpointing uh, prices and price targets, you know, you really need to do your own research. Don't look at Zoom, Zoom analyst consensus and give that really any credit because obviously uh, they did not know what they were doing. So um, roughly around the peak, Zoom was trading, had a valuation of close to 100 times revenue. Now, we would consider 100 times earnings to be an absolutely obscene valuation for almost any stock. Um, but 100 times revenue is it just goes beyond insanity for us. So this is nothing that we even given all of the uh, utility of it during the pandemic, nothing that we ever could have seen ourselves recommending. It also was not profitable at that time. So really, this was uh, analysts trying to follow a trend and trying to follow something popular, which if you do that long enough, it, it really just comes down to gambling. And um, the more you gamble, the more you're eventually going to lose. So we'll take a look at the Q1 results. Um, you know, pretty pr fairly lackluster for the most part on an absolute basis, although they did exceed analyst consensus. A revenue up about 3% for the quarter, a non-GAAP operating income up just under 6%, and the non-GAAP EPS up uh, just under 13%. So okay growth in non-GAAP EPS, but still lower than non-GAAP earnings. So you're going to have some taxation or interest. Um, interest, um, obscuring that calculation. Um, but, you know, once again, and we've talked about this in the past, when you're looking at technology companies, you have to dig a little bit into those non-GAAP figures and you have to compare them to the actual GAAP earnings. Um, so that's what we're going to do here. And we can see that when we, we, we use the non-adjusted profitability measures, the GAAP operating income, the GAAP earnings per share, it gives a completely different picture. So non-GAAP operating income goes down from 422 million down to 9.7 million. Non uh, earnings per share goes from non-GAAP of 116 per share down to five cents per share. So really, barely profitable in the quarter. And um, sometimes adjustments are absolutely necessary and they're justified. Uh, but whenever there's a su substantial difference between the adjusted or non-GAAP figure. And the, and the reported accounting figure, you really have to know what's causing that, that difference. Um, you can't just, a lot of analysts, a lot of investors just look at the non-GAAP and they take that uh, as, as the accurate number. Um, many don't. And you, we think you really just have to look and, and dig a little bit deeper. So um, no surprise at all that the major difference between GAAP and non-GAAP is the stock-based compensation. This is a common theme throughout software technology companies. Stock-based compensation, which is paying your employees in stock options or stock rights, 
um, is for many of these software companies, the largest expense bar none, um, or, you know, very close to. So in this case, 278 million off, off of about um, 1.1 billion in revenue. So about 25% um, of the revenue is just stock-based compensation. And there's a few other things in here, litigation settlements, acquisition related settlements, uh, restructuring expenses. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's arguable how we should treat those. There's different ways to do it, but you know, you certainly cannot just ignore the, um, the gap operating earnings, right? So in this case, you're getting a gap operating margin of just under 1%, barely profitable, uh, compare it even to last year when it was much higher, when really the only major expense um, here in, in, in the reconciliation with stock-based compensation, still relatively small margin of 17% uh, compared to the non-GAAP margin of 37% and 38% for this year. So do we completely ignore the non-GAAP operating er earnings? No, um, but we can't completely ignore the unadjusted earnings as well. A uh, few other takeaways. So enterprise revenue, uh, was 632 million was up 13%, but online revenue, which would be people like myself using Zoom, is down 8% year over year. Um, they did see a 23% increase in the number of customers, contributing over $100,000 per year. And uh, they also slightly increased their 2023 financial guidance. So, for, or sorry, 2024, fiscal 2024. So for the current year, they're expecting about 4.5 billion in revenue. It's basically flat compared to last year, about 2.6% growth. And then non-GAAP EPS is expected to uh, decline about 2%. So net-net, you know, you're looking at basically flat um, performance in the current year uh, compared to last year. And that's on a non-GAAP basis. They don't give GAAP guidance. Um, but if you, if you were to just take the non-GAAP earnings you're looking at a valuation of 15 times, which absolutely for a market leading company like this is uh, is not a bad valuation, but there's other considerations as well that factor in. So our take, well, we like the fact that it's it's a leader in a market, which we think has long-term growth. Um, I, there's a big bump up in demand during the pandemic. Now they're giving some of that back. Once things normalize out, we do see a continued growth trend uh, for this type of software. A lot of ways that they can develop it, expand it, obviously, strong brand recognition. They are the leader in a household name and pretty good valuation relative to at least non-GAAP earnings, um, not so relative to GAAP earnings. Um, but on the opposite side, little to no growth anticipated this year. Difficult to know when the company is going to start growing again. Minimal GAAP profitability. Um, and another thing that, that really kind of concerns me as well is just that I do expect to see a lot of competition um, from companies that have substantially more resources than um than zoom so even though zoom is the leader number two is microsoft teams of course we've talked before about how microsoft is one of the only companies that you can invest in chat gpt through um they are integrating that into their software suite that includes teams so a lot of different things you can do with teams that are ai integrated uh, another competitor a little further down the line is is uh, alphabet or google meet um, and then there's a few others, but, you know, just looking at Microsoft, looking at Google, I think they want to share this space as well. They are far larger companies um, with a far deeper um, technology development teams, lots of cash. Uh, so I, I would expect competition to heat up. And even though Zoom is talking about integrating AI 
into their system, which I'm sure that they will do more of that. You know, you, you also have to wonder what is their competitive advantage there relative to these AI behemoths like Microsoft and now Google that is that is recently released Bard publicly as well. So um, our our thoughts on the company, it's interesting. It's something that we're monitoring, but we're not we're not planning on recommending it right now. Um, if somebody were to like take a piece of it, you know, you could just because it's Zoom, maybe a very small position is a bit of a, a spec or a gamble. But you certainly I don't think looking from the share price momentum on it, there's any hurry. Um, you know, it probably if I was interested in getting a bigger position in the company, I would just wait for some signs that uh, that they were going to start growing again. So you guys want to uh, d- Give me some guesses here. You know, Arc Innovation, Kathy Woods Fund, yep. uh, about a year ago today, uh, put out their expected value on Zoom, their expected value, their bear case, their bull case. So again, put some context. This would have been after the first six months of the year. Uh, the bubble had burst intact, so there was far lower valuations. People were pessimistic. Give me your idea of their expected value share price target that they thought for Zoom by 2026. And just give me what you think their expected $1, value was. Pardon? $1,000. Okay. 600 Brennan? 600 maybe? Uh, 800 Okay. Their bear case. What was their bear case? 200 400 Yeah, maybe 100 and their bull case. Well, that was my. Oh, sorry. The thousand for me was their bull case. Yeah, so yeah. I was thinking the oh. same thing. Yeah, I was going with eight hundred for the bull. They're they're expected is what they reasonably believe it will be at. Their fifty percent probability, basically, and then their bull and bear were twenty five and twenty five. So they're if you if if you thought they're expected, what would you think it was then? Let's do that again. Just what they think the reasonable target is by twenty twenty six. Six hundred. Six hundred. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And Aaron? Okay. And their bull case. We already gave the bull case. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. We get it. Yeah. All right. Here, I'll give you them. So their expected value was 1500 <laughs> That's their expected value. None of us want their, their bear case. Okay. Mind you, it's trading at $65 today, correct? Yeah. So their bear case was 700 Their bull case is 2000 Wow. I, how do you yeah, get that? that? Y- y- Ryan, you forgot that the most is, important part. That's three years away. They, they got time yes, to it run. Is, it's true. It's using a model, apparently, that they use to value Tesla. So that will work out every time. I mean, Tesla is an absolute unicorn, right? Like, if you look at where it's been. completely different than, you know, it's I mean, they're a, they, you could say they're a leader in their industry, but the competition that they had, even at that time, from some players with far more capital... It, Good balance sheet with Zoom, but we're talking about growth of 3%, expected growth negative next year, right? I, I just, I'm not sure how they, how, how that fund, I don't know yeah, how like, anyone, I, I, I mean, we're I'm quoting it, but there is no I don't know how anyone does. analysis on it. Because once again, um, ARC were one of the biggest proponents of investing in Zoom, like right at Disruptors. The they yeah. thought it was just getting started basically at the peak, as far as I can remember anyways. Um, they were still, you know, active buyers of it. Uh, according to them, but you were looking at a company with no profitability and and trading at uh, close to 100 times revenues, right? So yeah. what, like, where where was the where, were you expecting that profitability to expand into the multiple, or the multiple just to continue to be astronomically high, 
or were you just throwing valuation analysis out the window? I think the latter, but um, uh, to me, you went over non-GAAP margin of 1%, basically nothing, zero. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe you get to three to 5% when you take out yeah, you know, maybe a couple a of those items that are reasonable. Take yeah. out maybe like acquisition but, restructuring, maybe that that's justified. Especially because they don't make acquisitions all the time, at least from my understanding. Maybe and the do, restructuring, if, if that was yeah. initiative to, to increase margins down the road, I can, I could see that argument. Um, stock-based compensation. I mean, like we've, we've talked about it before. There is an active debate on how mm-hmm. to treat it, but I would definitely say that like, you can't just ignore it wherever you fall in, in the spectrum of the debate. Can't ignore. You just, yeah. just saying, well, we're going to ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist is not. So if you pretended it totally didn't exist, maybe you could say it's relatively reasonable, except that there isn't growth. That's the issue right now. And, and, you know, they have to bring growth to the table at some point, even to get, I think it trades at 18 times cash flow, like in that range. And we'd still want to see, you know, 10% plus growth to really be interested. And it doesn't have that. So Zoom's interesting. Uh, you know, if I think the biggest thing is the competition there, like you can use Microsoft Teams, you can use Google Meet. You, I mean, there's, there's, that would be something that would make me worry going forward on the company because they integrate perfectly with their software too. So uh, uh, we'll move on from Zoom, continue to watch it. And we'll look at another company that we've also commented on in the past, but we keep getting questions on Converge Technologies, significantly smaller, CTS on the TSX Venture. Brennan, you've got this one. It's uh, about the third time we've reviewed it now, right? This is correct. So Converge Technology Solutions, CTS on the TSX, uh, currently trading at a price of about $3.44, a market cap of about $716 million, and a forward dividend yield of about 1.2%. Uh, they just initiated a dividend here. So description on the company. So Converge Technology Solutions Corp is a software-enabled IT and cloud solution value-added reseller focused on delivering industry-leading solutions and services. So Converge's global solution approach delivers advanced analytics, uh, application modernization, cloud, cybersecurity, digital infrastructure, and digital workplace offerings to clients across various various industries. And the company supports these solutions with advisory, implementation, and managed services uh, across all major IT vendors in the marketplace. So like Ryan said, uh, we have covered Converge uh, a couple times on the podcast. Uh, The first time was in October of 2020. You can see on the screen here. And at that time, the stock traded with an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of three times. It had trailing 12-month adjusted EBITDA margins of about 5%, net debt of about $207 and a net debt to EBITDA multiple of five times, which is pretty high, and shares outstanding of about $122 Now, the second time that we covered it uh, was in March of 2022. And at that time, the stock traded with an EV to EBITDA multiple of 22 times, an adjusted EBITDA uh, margin of about 7%. They now moved to a net cash position of about $229 million, And the shares outstanding had almost doubled to $215 million. And both times, my conclusion when I covered the stock was that it had great growth uh, driven by acquisitions. That's top line growth, uh, which was funded by both debt and equity dilution. But the stock had very thin margins. And I noted 
that several, and I actually got this from Ryan just due to his experience in the industry, uh, that several of Converge's executives uh, were originally from the publicly traded company Pivot Technology Solutions, which was PTG on the TSX, uh, which was in the similar IT solutions industry as Converge. But in the case of Pivot, we saw management rapidly grow the top line of the business through acquisitions with the use of financial leverage. However, the company was unable to establish accretive acquisitions and generate per share cash flow for shareholders over time, which led to a dismal share price. So moving on, just quickly here, I'll show you where their locations are. Uh, when Previously, when I covered them, uh, I do not believe that they were quite in Europe yet. They were just North America, uh, but now they are uh, in Europe as well. And a few company updates here. So in late 2022, uh, November to be exact, uh, the board of directors announced a strategic review process to evaluate a full range of strategic alternatives, including a sale, merger, divestiture, uh, recapitalization, and other or another uh, strategic transaction or continuing to operate as a public company. However, on May 9th, just recently, the company concluded the process and indicated that it will continue as a public company and continue to execute on its business plan. Now, like I said at the beginning, recently the board of directors authorized the initiation of a quarterly dividend of one cent per share, and they also intend to resume purchases under its NCIB uh, that commenced last summer. Now, in the company's Q1 2023 conference call, management indicated that after acquiring approximately $12 billion of gross sales through 10 acquisitions last year, they are pausing to focus on integration, cross-selling, and cash generation. And keep in mind, this isn't net sales, which is actually going to the business. They're referencing gross, gross sales there. Um, so essentially, the company has decided right now to prioritize organic growth over acquisitions uh, in the short term and to continue to gain uh, efficiencies through integration of you know its past acquisitions, which really we have only really seen the company continue to aggressively acquire in the past. Now, looking at the recent financial results for Q1 of 2023, uh, net revenues were up 37% to 678.2 million. Uh, dollar terms organic growth was about 6.8% year over year. Adjusted EBITDA increased about 39% to 41.2 million. And that's an adjusted EBITDA margin of about 6%. Adjusted EPS was up 20% to 12 cents per share compared to the same uh, period last year. Uh, we will dig into those adjusted numbers uh, pretty soon here. And the company now has net debt of about 321 million and a trailing net debt to EBITDA multiple of 2.1 times. And they are paying variable interest on that debt. Uh, and as at the last quarter, their interest rate was 5.1%. And the outstanding balance, I believe, is about 460 million Canadian. And then finally, the stock trades right now with an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of about 6.7 times. So let's quickly look at how the company is adjusting its net income to get to adjusted net income. Now, you can see that every quarter, the company is ba adding back significant special charges here. And if we look to see what those special charges consist of, the company provides a definition of special charges consist primarily of restructuring related expenses for employee terminations, lease terminations, restructuring of acquired companies, 
as well as certain legal fees or provisions related to acquired companies. Now, personally, I think that adding these uh, special charges back may be a little suspect as the company is consistently making acquisitions and continuing to incur these costs. Um, so, you know, I don't know if, if we can really take the adjusted uh, figures um, that they're providing here, but that's just my opinion. I'll get Ryan and Aaron and Brett's uh, opinions after. Now, finally, to conclude here, Revenue growth has been tremendous, driven by an aggressive cadence of acquisitions, but in the near term, management plans to slow down on acquisitions and focus uh, on integration. Essentially, we have seen the company go from significant net debt to then issuing shares to improve the balance sheet and get back into a net cash position. But now the company is back into a significant net debt position again, now with debt of about $460 million as at March 31st, 2023, and a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 2.1 times. And again, it pays interest at a variable rate on this debt. Now, the company trades with an EV to EBITDA multiple just under seven times, but adjusted EBITDA margins and net profit margins continue to be very thin. And as I indicated, the adjustments that the company is making to get to its adjusted profitability are a little suspect, at least in my opinion. Now, Converge continues to be a company which we monitor, but not a name uh, we would recommend to our clients. And I will open it up to the gentleman to see if they have any uh, comments. Yeah, I mean, just generally speaking, uh, software resellers, low margin yep. business, um, not, I mean, the, the plan for CTS has been to continue to increase the margin profile over uh, over time, the EBITDA margin. Uh, we just haven't seen that really play out in real time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, unless you can see that play out, I mean, there is a managed services part of the business. They want to get that part, I believe, to the range of uh, like 25% adjusted or EBITDA margin. Uh, they think when uh, originally it was at, they thought at a billion of managed services revenue, they could get to that type of margin. I think right now, like on an annual basis, they're doing like 130 million or something like that in that range. Um, don't quote me on that, but I believe that's what I read. Um, and, uh, you know, they're nowhere near that. And that would help the margin profile overall. But when you're doing the, you know, in the billions of sales that they're doing now, but it's still a small portion of that revenue of ma is managed services. They just haven't been able to pull up the margin profile of the business. And we need to see them hit on that over time. Uh, I've seen brokerage out there continually recommend this stock. Uh, continually have a higher margin expectation for the company and the company just not hit it. And that's why you see the share price continue to go lower in the market. Uh, you've flipped from a massive cash position to a significant net debt position. I think yep. the net debt is around 316 million as at the last quarter. Total debt is like 447 million. Uh, high debt level for a company with this market cap uh, and, uh, you know, within an increasing rate environment, uh, in a low margin business that cuts into your margins, your cash flow margins over time. And, uh, it's not something that we are, are looking at when it's, you know, making, it, it still trades out on a gap basis, a high multiple, despite the tremendous drop in the company's share price. Mm -hmm. It's just not something that we like. We like a higher margin, better business, uh, with, 
you know, that can actually push more of that growth on the top line to the bottom line. Exactly. And even if we, something to watch here is organic growth going forward as well. And even if, if we like look at, you know, the gap EPS say in, you know, Q3 of 2022, where it looks like it's, you know, earning 10 cents per share. I mean, realistically, mm-hmm. that was primarily from FX, you know, foreign exchange yeah. uh, gain, you know, so not even primarily just basically, basically yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was just, yeah, from, yeah, you know, so no, that's what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you know, I just, how can a company like this attract a high multiple if, you know, we're seeing margins like this? And I think Ryan already said that, but, uh, and the sad thing is the reason you see so many, um, brokerages, boutique and larger brokerages in Canada, um, continue to recommend this company is because they, they wet their whistle on a company like this. It keeps doing financings. They keep making the brokerages money that way. Uh, people that they're selling shares to or selling their research to that are buying this company. It's not the worst company out there. It's certainly, that's not what we're saying, but um, you know, it hasn't produced the margin improvement story that we uh, you know, that the company has promised. And you know, that's led to a lower share price over time. And there is razor thin margins and you have now more debt. We just went over this shrinking profit margins, share price goes down. Uh, you know, not a lot in the kitty to make more acquisitions. I mean, they talked about a strategy of now cross-selling. Well, I'm not sure where the capital is going to come from for them to actually go out there and make acquisitions. I mean, there is cash sitting there, but then you just go more and more into debt. And you could raise shares and you dilute more. So, Just to give a quick idea about uh, brokerages recommending this stock, uh, they display uh, 13 uh, price targets on their website. Uh, Guess how many of them are below the current price of about 330 and guess how many are above? I'd well, say all or they're above. all above. Yeah. 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 One below. So. Oh, wow. One that's, below. That's, CIBC that's recommends shock. at that's a price target of $3 and the rest are 450 or higher. Most are about $7. Yeah. So yeah. all, I'm all surprised the major they banks, like CIBC, Cormark, they're all recommending it. And yeah. this is on yeah. Converge's website, of course. This is why it's, it's just. Can the thing ridiculous. is, it's been a top pick of, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to name, but of, of several like boutique brokerages. And uh, yeah, it certainly hasn't done well. Again, there are revenues here. There is some level of profitability at times. It's not the worst company that we're talking about out there. But uh, when we see companies that actually have better margins, more consistent growth, uh, these are the time type of companies we like to invest in. Yes, this company has implemented a dividend, but you know, there's a massive amount of debt here. Maybe you just want to pay off some of that Probably. debt instead of paying back a dividend uh, until you know it's incredibly sustainable. And one last point, um, I actually found what they're, they were targeting here. So this was in one of their past presentations. So long term, yeah. the company is aiming to grow its revenue uh, from two to five billion through 2022 mm-hmm. to the end of 2025 and grow its adjusted EBITDA margins to 10% by 2025. So they're looking to grow yeah. those margins. You know, who knows? If the, who that knows would be there. probably by onboarding more managed services revenues, mm-hmm. which they think they can get the higher margin from, which they likely can. Um, they got to do it. They got to do it. They haven't been able to so far. And, uh, you know, until they can, they're not going to get to those multiples. And yeah. even at 10%, it's just okay. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's like, you know, there's many companies we're looking at with 20, 20 plus, you know, mm-hmm. percent that, that are, uh, just more, just more interest to us. Yeah. 
that we'd look at. Uh, it's not the, again, not the worst company out there. We're looking for better companies with better margins over the long term. So finally, we're going to end it off. Brett's going to look at the U.S. Uh, Congress t- debating the U.S. debt ceiling. This is uh, seems to be an annual event now. Oh, yeah, no, it, that's... It's been something that's been happening more and more these days. It used to actually, it's, it's existed for about 105 years, 106 years now. It was done in uh, 1917 initially during World War One. was when they initially implemented their debt ceiling and they transferred from uh, individually uh, issuing loans and Congress would have to yeah, go to I that. Think, they, I think Aaron remembers that, that, that yeah. when it originally came in. Mm-hmm. Aaron was probably uh, <laughs> watching it. He was, he was early on in his career. Yeah. Yeah. All right, though. Uh, so <laughs> the U.S. debt ceiling, is, it's just once again being debated in U.S. Congress. This time it's part of Biden's 2024 budget. This is almost uniquely an American issue as the only other country that has a nominal debt limit. So a set dollar value is that is Denmark and the Danes. They normally raise it well in advance of even approaching the limit. Last time it, they were about two thirds of their limit when they raised it. And that was the highest it's ever been. So this is uniquely an American issue. And it's not the first time, like Ryan was saying, the debt ceiling has been raised over 90 times historically. But since the great financial crisis, it's been more contentious among policymakers. And frankly, if you don't know, the debt ceiling is simply just how much the U.S. Treasury can have outstanding of their debt. So all your Treasury bills, bonds and all that, that's how much they're issuing. If the debt ceiling is breached, the U.S. Treasury is unable to issue more debt and therefore they're unable to pay government bills for Medicare, Social Security, and also unable to roll its existing debt amongst other things, which would in turn freeze or at least hinder many, many government operations. The U.S. debt ceiling for the U or the U.S. debt ceiling is currently about 31.4 trillion. For size comparison, the U.S. GDP is affected for 2023 to be about 23.6 trillion. The equity markets have not reacted to the shifts in the news and opinions of policymakers, really. Day to day, you'll see a bit of an influx. So in a day which you'll see, oh, they're, they're going to pass this bill, which will allow a debt ceiling to be raised. The markets might rally a bit, but then the next day it will give back. It hasn't been a sustained shift. However, on the fixed income side, we have seen a significant shift. So we saw a significant shift about at the start of May compared to about mid-April of the one-month T-bills shifting to about 5.5% from about 45 to 4.75 in that range, depending on the exact maturity date, and yields have stayed elevated since. So you're seeing about a 75 to 100 basis points uplift just in default risk over the last month. So another way we can look at these events uh, in referring to the default rate is CDSs or credit default swaps, which is effectively insurance for bonds or a T-bill if it defaults. In the following graph, CDS premiums, so what you're paying, have seen a massive spike to 160 to 100 basis points, depending on the day, up from 20 to 40 basis points prior to the debt ceiling being put on center stage. Again, for our listeners, the graph is effectively just a straight up line. And it's as well, this is an all-time high since 08. And it is substantially ab- above it. And in 08, we were seeing the five-year being higher versus this time we're seeing the one-year as well as lower maturity. So you're one month, but this graph doesn't display that. So we can also use those premiums to derive the market's implied f- probability of defaulting. So the chance that the government will default on the event according to the market prices. 
which right now is about three and a half to four percent. So you're seeing treasury bills having a chance of defaulting in the next year for the one years of three and a half to four percent compared to the 2011 and 2013 debt crisis. Like Brian was saying, and I've said, this is not the first time this has happened. <laughs> 2011, which was the most severe, peaked around 6% chance default. And just for context, the 2011 ceiling was raised two days before the expected X date, which is the date when treasuries can no longer issue debt. And the X date does move. It's really a, a best guess. And it's never really, until it would happen, you wouldn't know the exact time. And in 2013, the government passed the Continuing Appropriations Act to extend the timeline before the de default and effectively ended the crisis as they were eventually able to reach a deal. And that was about 4% then, so about where we are now. If you're wondering why the default chance is notably lower than in the 2011, yet the premiums are higher, it's because yields are currently much higher as a result of interest rates, which in turn increase the CDS premiums, the securities trade at greater discounts, which increase the value at risk for the treasury holders. So default risk, it is currently lower than in the 2011, but the premium is higher. So really, what does all this mean for investors? I probably lost half of you already running through CDSs and treasuries, but it is a big deal if this does occur. I should really stress that this could be a massive impending crisis if it were to occur. However, if a deal is unable to be reached and US, the US defaults on its obligations and payments in the real world, we would see significant and far-reaching effects, according to the CEE. CEA, the council who advises the presence on these matters, immediately following a default day-to-day -day operations would shut down, the U.S. credit rating would fall into restricted default or RD for Fitch ratings, with individual treasuries that do default going into D rating or default rating. In the real economy, uh, the decline of GDP would occur significantly, with immediate expected losses of jobs about 2 million. 2 million jobs lost just by them not passing this. As well, it would likely increase to increase borrowing rates over the long term as the faith in the U.S. government will be lost. You see a rating decrease from the rating agencies, which potentially weaken the dollar's hegemony worldwide. So your dollarization in other countries would be at risk if this were to occur. But even worse, if we saw an extended default, the stock market would fall by 45% within the first quarter. This is all expected. This would if this does occur, don't be saying it didn't fall by 45%. This is best estimates by the CEA. And 8 million jobs would be lost. You would see any credit cards, loans, mortgage, interest rates, all that would skyrocket to unprecedented levels. So if you think your mortgage has gone up a lot so far, if this were to happen, this would be peanuts in comparison. The U.S. would fall into a deep recession as the real economy of the U.S. would be severely weakened. Any credit markets and credit margins are weakened as well. This would devastate not just the U.S., but most likely the world economy, especially ones that are deeply connected to the U.S., like Canada. Not exactly a positive note to end on, but I'll open that up to you guys. I guess we should just say they better get it done, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. what we better say. Yeah, it, it I mean, really is. I mean, we would, ex we would expect, but yeah, it does have dire consequences mm -hmm. if, if, you know, it is not, uh, if they don't get that yeah. done. It's one so, of I mean, I... It's, yeah. it's one of those Go. times you're hoping it's political theater and not an yeah. actual case of them disagreeing, well, which I, I'm most, the, the, most time it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from what I, when I've observed this for years and years and years now, it is a lot of political theater, people trying to score points. And in the end, you know, 
if it isn't done, the, the, you just went over, you listed a number of things that would occur or could occur if th this is not raised at that ceiling that I mean, it just, it makes it impossible for them not to at some point. So exactly. I, I, mm -hmm. you, we would expect, uh, given the stakes that it will be. Yeah, yeah this is why. No, and I got to say, because Aaron isn't disputing that he recalls when it was passed in, in 1917, are you disputing it, Aaron? Your silence incriminates you. So clearly you do remember hearing this pass at that time. I, I was, uh, was going to add to, like, I was just reading a, a JP Morgan uh, article here, and they're ba they, they say basically since World War II, the ceiling has been raised or suspended about 102 times, which the last was uh, in 2021. Yeah. And generally, like looking at how the market responds to these debt ceiling episodes, um, like we did see, I guess the S and P five hundred. I think this was the one of the larger declines. The S and P five hundred uh, moved from, I believe, about thirteen hundred to and it came coming all the way down to about eleven hundred, um, right as they were kind of going through this episode, but generally, you know, JP Morgan makes comments here that outside of 2011, um, realistically, the, you know, volatility around the debt ceiling drama is usually short lived. So, you know, mm -hmm. usually we see the market recover uh, quite rapidly, but that's as long as they come to some sort of conclusion. And just in context as well, that was the US actually received a rating downgrade on their uh securities it's a great point so that was the first time that they happened they were uh, i believe triple a before now they're double a if i remember correctly i will put it up if i am wrong so yeah no, yeah i believe it yeah. was certainly a different and yeah. uh, singular moment in time when yeah. at that time when it happened it was the backs of the economic crisis and you know it did but a different time than we would expect them uh, to be able to increase the ceiling this time once again, as we've seen many times in the past. But it is a good discussion point, and it's certainly topical in the markets this week. Yep. All right, I think that's going to end our show. Do we have anything else? We're good? Aaron's Aaron? gone silent. He's nothing. He's gone silent. Uh, if anybody who's just listening to the, uh, <laughs> to the podcast right now and can't see on YouTube, Aaron is just a stick figure basically right now. He's had to run out. Uh, there was some unforeseen event that he had to run out to. So we're, we're getting our jabs in at him while he's not there. But we're going to end the show off on that note, jabbing Aaron very hard. And uh, wish that you continue to, co continue to come and uh, rate and review us on uh, iTunes. And you can also smash that subscribe button if you're viewing this on YouTube right now. Continue to subscribe to our channel. We're getting more and more uh, subscriptions every every week, which is awesome to see. As always, I wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.